And Lord, as we pray over the word tonight, Lord, we ask you as we pray that the Holy Spirit right now, we thank you that he's moving upon all of us that are going to be um, hearing this word tonight. And the Holy Spirit will help us to be, have good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, anointed eyes and ears of the Spirit, that we can see and hear and understand maybe what we couldn't have before, but the Holy Spirit will help us to understand. And the Holy Spirit will move upon not only our hearts and our minds, but we're asking and we thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit blowing the seed of the word out everywhere it's supposed to go among the nations. And Lord, we stand on that promise that it will not return void, but it will go forward and accomplish that which you sent it for to do. And I thank you for speaking through me, your uh, living seeds of truth, that everything will be said that needs to be. It's going to get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. There'll be a washing of the water of the word. It'll be a bright light shining in the darkness, just penetrating the darkness. A sword, Lord, a, a hammer that's going to break through every stronghold. We thank you for the awesome power of your word. And we bless you, Lord, and we submit this unto you, and we resist the devil, because we know the enemy tries to hinder. So, Lord, we agree to go as a church. We bind up anything in the name of Jesus that would try in any way to hinder, distract, resist, oppress this word, try to hinder it from getting where it's supposed to and accomplishing what it's supposed to. We command that to be bound right now in Jesus' name and back off. And, Lord, we thank you for your angels just clearing that out, and they're going to make sure that everything's accomplished in and through tonight that you will to be done. Lord, we thank you for it, and we believe it, and we agree together as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, we're going to look at part 17 tonight, the woman and the dragon. So <clears throat> we're looking at Revelation chapter 12. It's in your notes, but if you want to open your Bible, those that may be listening to this and don't have the notes with you, open your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. Now, what you have to understand is, is Revelation, some of it is in chronological order, but not all of it necessarily is. So you're going along and you hit Revelation 11, and then it's like a parenthesis, where all of a sudden this is called parenthetical, where it's like God pushes pause on the chronology and he says, okay, well, let's talk about a few things. And so Revelation chapter 12, we're going to look at some things here. And like, for example, Revelation 13, which I'll cover next week, talks about the rise of the false prophet, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist. Well, we know that that happens before the uh, seals and the uh, trumpets and all that, for the most part, at least before the trumpets for sure. So anyway, do you see what I'm saying? It's not necessarily in chronological order. So Tonight, as we look at this, just keep that in mind that this is an interesting passage of Scripture, but it is not something that's in order. It's something where God pauses and says, let me elaborate on some things. Let me help you understand some things, okay? So let's go ahead and just read it, and I'm just going to go straight through it and explain all of it as I go, and then we'll close this out. This won't be terribly long but just explaining this chapter but revelation chapter 12 verse 1 it said a great sign appeared in heaven and there was a woman that was clothed with the sun <clears throat> the moon under her feet and her head a crown of seven stars and she was pregnant and cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth isn't that interesting so obviously this is beginning to speak of Israel and it's speaking of the birth 
of Jesus. Okay, so y'all give me your best here tonight. I'm going to try to explain this. So this is dealing with like a, a lengthy period of time. So this is going back. What you have to understand here is that the woman represents the nation of Israel. It doesn't represent the church. The church is the virgin bride of Christ. And I can't, for the sake of time, really belabor this point too much. But God the Father married himself to the nation of Israel at Sinai. Moses was kind of an officiator of this. And God came down on Sinai, and his presence was like a big giant chopa over the top. And God gave what's in the Hebrew culture the ketubah, which is our equivalent of a marriage license. He gave Israel the law and Moses down there at the bottom he offers the offerings the people agree to the covenant okay it's a covenant he sprinkles the blood of the covenant seals the deal and then Moses and some of the leaders the 70 elders and others went up and it says this in your Bible that they ate and drank in the presence of the Lord they saw the Lord they saw him on like a throne and I believe they saw a pre-incarnate Christ but they saw the Lord, and it says they, they lived, they didn't die, and they ate and drank in his presence. And the reason for that was in those times to seal a covenant, you ate after the fact. It was a covenant meal, okay? So God, this is a reference here to his spouse. The father married himself to the nation of Israel. And the purpose, the ultimate purpose of that relation was that through that, eventually, this woman, Israel, was going to give birth to the Messiah, who would be a blessing to the entire world. Does that make sense? Okay. So you see here, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. So this is Israel, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars, and 12 always speaks of government, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And she was pregnant, and she cried out, being in labor and pain to give birth. Now, let me just stop and just say something here, that there is going to be signs that we need to see. Now, back in 2014 and 15, there was these significant blood moons that took place at Passover and Pentecost two years in a row. There was also a significant solar eclipse. So you have in the moon, you have a sign in the sun. And then in September the 23rd of 2017, there was an alignment that looked exactly like this woman in the heavens. Where literally the stars aligned around the head and with the moon under the feet type of thing, it was exactly like this description in the heavens. And prophecy buffs were looking at this going, man, this is a sign. Well, let me tell you, don't take that lightly because look at this. Jesus Christ himself, everybody say Jesus said. Right here, Luke 21, 25, he said there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Jesus said that. And see, when people were seeing these things and saying, look, it's a sign, there's the Lord's uh, talking about his soon coming, and these, these are biblical signs. I mean, turning the moon to blood, the sun, the sun turned to darkness, and then this woman being in the, I mean, this all happened. And people are looking at this going, man, this is a sign, but other people are there mocking and belittling these things, you see, or saying that, that they're practicing astrology or something. It's a bunch of nonsense. 
So Jesus said there would be signs in the heavens and they are going to happen. Now here's the interesting thing. We had those signs in 2014, 15, and then into 17. And now look at all the things that are going on in the earth right now. I don't have time to get into it. I think people have kept up with things enough to know that we're not living in normal times. Could it be that those signs in the heavens were trying to, to shout to the earth, look, you're about to start entering into some rumblings. Uh, end time events are going to speed up. Things are going to start changing. My coming is near. You see? It's screaming to the earth. Signs in the heavens. And God has a remnant that will see it and understand it. So anyway, you have this woman which represents the nation of Israel. God the Father betrothed himself to Israel through that union, eventually brought forth the Messiah. And now this is interesting. In verse 3, it says that another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars, and he hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. So in this, it's like just a few sentences, but you're dealing with a huge amount of time in a few sentences, okay? I think this will make sense as I explain it. So as God the Father betroths himself, marries the nation of Israel, and there's this process of bringing forth the Messiah, simultaneously you have Satan trying to hinder God's purposes. So in this, you see here, number one, let me point out, that Satan started out in the Garden of Eden described as entering a serpent which is pretty small in stature even if it's something like a size of a anaconda and a bow constrictor whatever compared to a huge dragon it's small but you see in the book of revelation that now he's described as this huge giant massive dragon so see he's grown in power and i'll explain the heads and the horns and all that in just a moment but you also see in here that his tail swept a third of the stars down with him. So there's a reference here where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. But see, we know from this scripture that he took a third of the angels with him in his fall. Okay, so see, this is a short little paragraph here, but it's describing Lucifer's fall from heaven it's describing him going from the Garden of Eden to eventually becoming this massive dragon. And it says that the dragon stood before the woman to destroy the Messiah. Isn't it interesting when you look down through the ages, when man fell, God spoke to Adam and said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. There was a curse. And then he spoke to the woman, pain and childbearing and etc but then he looked at the serpent on your belly you'll go but he said to the to the serpent he said that eventually and i'm paraphrasing okay but there was a prophecy here and i'm paraphrasing the prophecy but he basically said to satan he said 
you, you accomplish this, but my Messiah will come. And you may strike his heel, but he will crush your head. See, it was the prophecy of Jesus coming. And right here, Satan knew that at the fall. Basically, God told him, through the woman, I will bring forth a man-child through the woman that will destroy you. He will crush your head. He will break your power. You may have accomplished something for a time, but ultimately, the Messiah will come, the last Adam, and he will finish you. And so, Satan heard that, and he immediately began to strategize, how am I going to stop this? He, ha he sees Abel as a righteous man from Adam, came through the woman, and he sees that Cain is not that way. But he stirs up Cain to kill Abel, trying to stop this coming Messiah. That was the whole point of it. And then as time goes on, you see the whole thing in Genesis 6 about how he sent some of his fallen angels down. They begin to procreate with women and produce the Nephilim, this hybrid between human and angel. And he's trying to distort the human DNA, the human gene. He's trying to pervert it and distort it to where it's so perverse all over the world that there's no way that the Messiah could come. Does this make sense? And then it's like a giant, huge cosmic chess match. The devil tries one move, and then God does another move. You see, he kills Abel, but then ultimately Adam has another son. And then he creates... Satan creates the Nephilim, but then God says, okay, well, then I'll flood the earth and wipe them out and start over with Noah. And then God calls Abraham, and, and we know the story how Satan tried to, basically tried to kill Joseph. And then as Israel gets into uh, Egypt, he tries to stir up a Pharaoh to kill all of the male children to kill Moses, worried that maybe Moses was the Messiah. He didn't know for sure. Down through the ages, then he perverts Israel to worship other gods and get themselves in a situation where he's thinking, if I can so mess up this betrothed woman that God the Father has betrothed himself to, if I can get things so perverted and messed up, then the Messiah can't come. He's trying to stop the Lord's coming. Even to the degree that when Jesus actually was born, he stirred up Herod to send in his army and kill all the male children trying to kill Jesus in the process. Of course, an angel appeared to Joseph and they fled to Egypt for a time. And Satan thinks at the cross, he thinks he finally, the Messiah actually came. He recognizes him as such. He realizes, okay, he's here now. And he stirs up, both Jew and Gentile, stirs them up to murder him. But what he didn't realize is, is that was him fulfilling the prophecy that he struck his heel, but through the cross, Jesus crushed his head. You see what I'm saying? It fulfilled the prophecy, and he played right into it. So the dragon, down through the ages, Satan has constantly tried to stir up, and even over the last couple thousand years, Satan knows that Jesus is going to return. And he knows that there has to be, according to the Bible, there has to be an Israel, 
they're inside of Israel there has to be a Jerusalem and ultimately there has to be a temple but he knows that Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives and so from the last 2,000 years you see one thing after the next the Jews are scattered then you, then you see all this persecution against the Jewish people with the Crusades and Inquisition and most recently and notably you see what Hitler and the Holocaust and you see even now, little bitty Israel, look on a map, tiny little Israel, who, by the way, minds their own business, constantly harassed and bombarded, constantly. Why? Because Satan is trying to destroy that land and trying to destroy those people. Why? He did everything he could to stop Jesus' first coming. He's doing every possible thing to try to stop his second coming. That's what all that's about. You wonder, why is this teeny tiny little nation that minds its own business constantly in the news, constantly the United Nations is continually picking on them? Why do nations rage and conspire against them? Why are they surrounded with terrorists continually? Why? The demonic realm. Satan knows Jesus is coming back. So that here is what John is saying. This red dragon is standing there trying to stop. He tried to stop the first coming, and now he's trying to stop the second. So let me explain the, the beast with seven heads and ten horns. You can't help but think of Leviathan with this, right? Leviathan. Leviathan is a sea monster in the Bible that has multiple heads. And this, in my opinion, does speak of Leviathan. And Leviathan is, is a, another descriptive term of like a satanic being. And Leviathan is the, basically the spirit of pride, but it's in the waters. Remember how the sea represents the mass humanity in the earth? It represents of the vast nations of the earth. Well, Leviathan is in the sea. It, it's a spirit of pride and in these last days, human pride is going to reach its pinnacle. And as human pride really comes to its fullness, it's going to give way to the Antichrist and the, and the globalism under him. So Leviathan here speaks of, number one, about pride, but also the seven heads. This is actually really important. The seven heads of Leviathan here there, there's a couple things. You know how in Revelation there's layers of understanding? Well, if you understand the hierarchy of Satan, Satan's kingdom, you see that under Satan himself, you, he has world-ruling spirits. These are very, very powerful beings under Satan that blanket the whole world with their influence. You have things like the Antichrist spirit. You have spirits like... Uh, Jezebel or the whore of Babylon queen of heaven that spirit and of course Leviathan and you have others that they seem to blanket the entire planet under the devil with their influence so that speaks of seven major world ruling spirits that are going to traffic in these last days very powerfully I believe one of them will be mind control and you're already seeing that then you have the ten horns under the Antichrist, he's going to separate the earth under his, all the nations are going to be unified in globalism under him. 
He's going to separate them into ten land masses under his rule. Not that the earth will be limited to those ten, but those will be the ten major strong principalities, if you will, that he brings under his dominion. And through that, he rules the whole world. And so the ten horns speak of the ten antichrist land masses. Let me give you an example. He may, for, for example, could use China, but even though China is one land mass, they oversee the Far East in general. And then he may bring Russia, but Russia may oversee parts of Eastern Europe and kind of the old Soviet Union empire area. Does that make sense? He's going to separate the world into 10 different land masses. And just like the Antichrist has 10 land masses, he's going to have principalities over those land masses. So the 10 horns speak of the 10 principalities that rule the entire world. And another layer of revelation, which is interesting you remember once the rapture happens and the church as far as the remnant bride is gone and the church age by and large has come to a close that age of the dispensation of what god was doing at that time and the focus goes back on israel and once israel signs a peace covenant in agreement with the antichrist it starts the seven-year tribulation okay Israel, so the focus is going to go back on the nation of Israel. Israel has had seven major enemies. Isn't it interesting? There's seven heads. Okay. They had Egypt is the first enemy. Then it was Assyria. Remember Assyria took the northern kingdoms captive. And then later Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, he took the southern remaining kingdom captive into captivity then it moved to medo persia they were together as one uh, ruling power but persia became greater and you remember this because it's the book of esther took place during that time okay then it goes to greek alexander the great you have the greeks that rule and they were an enemy specifically the hanukkah story Antiochus Epiphanes try to come in destroy the temple etc or at least temple worship and then it goes from Greek to Rome remember that and we know about this because in our Bibles it talks during Jesus's day Rome was the ruling power of the world and then finally the last one will be the Antichrist end time world system that is called babylon now let me say this for the sake of clarity a lot of bible teachers use different terms they'll call this end time uh unified world under the antichrist the new roman empire and that's a good name for it also they'll say it's like a revised grecian empire and that's another good descriptive term but just from my perspective, John calls it Babylon. So I'm going to refer to it as Babylon through our studies, okay? But there's nothing wrong with calling it the, new, the last Roman Empire, okay? So the Antichrist is going to be the last ruler, 
there was, he's the seventh one in a series that's really going to be an enemy to Israel. All right. I didn't lose anybody just then, did I? All right. So then we go to verse 5. So the Bible gives us the story about Jesus is coming through Israel, then the story of the dragon, and ultimately how he ends up in his fullness of power with his Antichrist ruling over 10 land masses, unifying the world, and it's going to be an enemy, a great enemy to the nation of Israel, trying to stop the second coming of the Lord. And let me say this too before I read verse 5. This is going to be Satan's counterfeit to the triune God. See, Satan is going to basically be like a counterfeit to God the Father. And he's going to have his Antichrist, who's a physical man, who's going to be a false Christ, a false Messiah. And then the false prophet is going to be like a counterfeit to the Holy Spirit. So it's a, it's a false trinity, a counterfeit trinity. So verse 5, Israel here, she gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God to his throne. So that's where Jesus is right now. Whoever lives to make intercession. Then, now here's the interesting thing. Remember when you're dealing with the nation of Israel, up until Jesus, remember Daniel saw up until Jesus and then the Messiah was cut off and then it was like pause. Y'all remember that? And then there's this 2,000 year church period that Daniel didn't see. But it was like unpause that last seven years that deals with Israel, okay? Same thing here. The woman, it said that the Messiah was taken up to the throne of God. Then the next thing you see is the woman fleeing into the wilderness. So here's what's going to happen. What is this referring to? The woman fleeing into the wilderness. Do you remember when Jesus was preaching? And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the nation of Israel. And in Matthew 24, etc., when he's talking about these things, He's talking to Jewish people and he's talking to the nation of Israel about the nation of Israel. And he says this. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, he said, don't go back in your house and try to get things. He said, just flee. And he said, pray that your flight won't be on the Sabbath. And woe to those women who are either with child or they're nursing babes, it's going to be really difficult for them. They're going to have to flee for their life. So what was Jesus referring to? This is what's coming, okay? Once the rapture happens, the remnant bride is gone, and that church age, for the most part, is closed out. That dispensation's over. Now the focus is back on the nation of Israel and God's going to finish. This is the 70th week of Daniel. It's the last thing that's going to happen in regard to prophecy regarding the nation of Israel. This is the end. It's going to finish things until Jesus actually comes to that nation on that throne of David to reign. Okay? Last seven years. 
So I'm going to give you a quick understanding of this. So I personally believe that in the very near future, you're going to see the Gog-Magog war happen. Ezekiel 38-39. The Bible predicts in Ezekiel about the last days. It says that. It's talking about the latter days. It says that these specific nations will form a confederacy together and they will come against Israel. And it says that they're going to be in peace without walls. Right now, Israel has walls, and they're not at peace. But isn't it interesting that President Trump has been working so hard about these Abraham peace accords? And so you have the Emirates, etc., others beginning to talk peace with Israel. Also, the specific nations that Ezekiel mentions, it's very interesting, he specifically mentions the nation of Turkey, which is called Togarma in the Bible. He references Russia. He references Iran, which in the Bible was called Persia. And then he references Gomer, which is Eastern Europe. And then down in the southern, like the uh, northern African area, put Libya, that type of area right in there. I find it very interesting that those nations were specifically mentioned. Now, Gomer, when you deal with Eastern Europe, that's where the Holocaust took place. There's still a lot of anti-Semitism there. Russia has had a history of the pogroms, a lot of anti-Semitism there. Turkey, that was where Paul had all those churches planted that we read about in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. I mean, all those churches that were mentioned in Pergamum and Sardis and churches, uh, all of them were in that area called Asia Minor in the Bible. Now it's called Turkey. But see, Turkey historically has been a NATO ally to us. But just here recently, it has been changing radically to Muslim influence that's very anti-Israel. Also, Iran hates the nation of Israel and has been trying to get nuclear weapons. But for the first time, we're seeing Russia and Iran getting buddy-buddy. And Africa, in the last couple decades or so, has really, in the northern part of the Sudan area and all of that, has been getting more and more radically Muslim. So you can see that those specific groups that were mentioned in the Bible are starting to get to a place to where it is no longer far-fetched that they will come together and attack the nation of Israel. It's actually very possible that that could happen very soon. Within the next 10 years, it's very possible. The way that I see it personally... The Bible also says that um, apparently America is not going to do much about it. America is going to be weakened. Other nations that are allies to Israel are just going to look on and they're not going to do anything about it. But this is for God's glory because these nations are going to come kind of out of nowhere and they're going to attack Israel. But the Bible says in Ezekiel 38, 39 that God himself is going to fight for Israel to the degree 
that God himself is going to send meteorites, rocks, falling from the sky on their militaries. God himself is going to defend Israel and defeat them. I'm, I'm sorry, defeat their enemies. And because God defeats their enemies and it's so supernatural that it says that God's going to receive a lot of glory from this. But with that said, I personally believe that Israel is going to feel probably somewhat betrayed that their allies didn't come to defend them. And they're also going to think to themselves, we just don't have any friends in the world. That's when the false Messiah appears. And the Antichrist begins to gain traction in the political realm. He's everybody's hero as far as the world goes. They love him. They applaud him. He's talking peace. Lay down your weapons. Let's form a one world government. Let's form a one world military. Everything's going to begin to come under his dominion. And he's going to approach Israel with a peace covenant which I believe because of the Gog-Magog war, Israel is going to be very open to a peace agreement. Do you see what I'm saying? And they're going to say, yes, but here's another thing. I personally think that the Antichrist is going to offer Israel that they will be able to rebuild their temple if they haven't already, but that they're going to be able to worship in their temple with those offerings in peace from the Muslims and others won't be able to mess with them. They're going to go back into the temple worship of bringing their offerings and sacrifices. And that's going to be part of the peace agreement. But what's going to happen though is this. For the first three and a half years regarding Israel, <laughs> it's going to look like peace and safety. It's going to look like everything's wonderful. Many of them will probably believe that this Antichrist is in fact the Messiah. Because he reinstituted temple worship. He brought peace to the nation of Israel. Does this make sense? But here's what's going to happen. Three and a half years into it, the Antichrist, who seemed like the darling of the world, and he seemed like um, Israel's hero, he's going to walk into the temple. And he's going to sit in the temple, and he's going to have some kind of an image, some kind of an idol. I suspect this is totally my opinion. This is just my opinion. But have you guys seen that statue that the Satanists have been floating around different places of Baphomet? You know what I'm talking about? They took to the Capitol. Y'all seen that? I think that's going to be what it is. That's just my opinion. Maybe wrong. It could be an image of himself. The guy is going to be as arrogant as anybody's ever been. But he's going to sit there. He's going to have some kind of an idol that he's going to demand that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, worship him as God. And his image, which, by the way, can supernaturally speak. And the Jewish people are going to be like, well, rule number one in the Bible. Do not make a graven image and do not bow down to it. I mean, come on. And they're going to be like, we're not going to worship you. You're not God, and we're not going to worship your image. See, him setting himself up in the temple is the greatest abomination you can imagine. That's what Jesus was saying, the abomination right there. 
And when the Jewish people say, we're not going to worship you and we're not going to worship your image, what are you doing in the temple? What is your image doing in the temple? The Antichrist is going to get enraged. And he's going to release his military to go after the Jews and slaughter them. That's desolation. So it's an abomination that ends up causing widespread desolation. So Hitler killed one-third the Antichrist will kill two-thirds. But here it describes what's going to happen in here in just a moment. Do you, but do you remember last week when I was talking about that measuring rod, measuring the temple, and then it measured the people? I, I believe this is my, my view of seeing this, okay, in my opinion. I think God is going to measure the Jewish people because there has to be a third that is going to be a lot. There has to be a remaining remnant when Jesus comes. You understand? Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of God is forever. It will not, it will not pass away. Not one jot or tittle. None of it will. Be. So in other words, prophecy has to be fulfilled. There has to be an Israel. There has to be a Jerusalem. There has to be a temple. And there has to be a remnant of Jews when Jesus comes. There has to be. Does that make sense? So God is like he's measuring the Jews to see who's going to measure up to be the ones he's going to spare because some of them that are alive are atheists and some of them are you know they're very far from God they're heathen and I believe that God is going to kind of measure and there's going to be a third of them that he is going to supernaturally protect and preserve them there's no way on earth that they will be able to take credit for this one this was something only God could do. It was totally supernatural. He's going to protect them and keep them from death, sure death. If there was no way that they didn't die, but God stopped it. Okay, here, let me read and show you what happens. So it says the woman fled into the wilderness. This is the, the third of the Jews that God is going to protect. They fled for their lives into the wilderness. For 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. So you see the last three and a half years, there's going to be Israel going to flight. They're going to be fleeing for their life because of the Antichrist trying to kill them. Is this making sense tonight? So look at this. In verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war against the dragon. Now, let me tell you that it seems to be in Scripture, Daniel referred to this, it seems to be that Michael is the angel that watches over Israel. So, in other words, you, you think to yourself, well, I wonder where the archangel Michael hangs out around Israel to make sure the devil doesn't destroy Israel. That's his assignment. But it says that God is going to release Michael and his warrior angels to wage war against Satan and his fallen angels. And look at this. The dragon and his angels waged war and they did not prevail. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then, uh, okay, let me just stop there. See, right now, 
We know that there's demonic spirits that roam the earth. We all know that. But when it refers, when Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, wickedness in the heavenlies, over your head, over your city, over your nation, over the nations of the earth, in that realm overhead called, the Bible refers to it like the second heaven, that's where there's thrones where fallen angels dwell, okay? There is a principality over Washington, D.C. There is a principality over Austin. I believe that they dwell where decisions are made. That's our capital. So that's where he resides. That's why Austin is kind of different. So <laughs> anyway, there's, there's principalities. There's a strong one in California. Don't get offended, California people. But there is a strong one there. And they rule over geographic areas. Now listen, it says that Michael waged war and all of Satan and his forces were thrown down to the earth. They lost their thrones. This, you know what this is? This is Jesus saying, I'm about to show up. Michael, get them out of my heaven. Get all their thrones out of the way. Cast them down. I'm about to come clean house. That's what that is right there. And Michael and his angels say, let's go. And they start waging war. And they begin to dethrone every principality, every power, every ruler that's ruled over nations and regions. They grab them and they throw them to the earth. And then it says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcome him by the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, they did not live their life even to the death. For this reason rejoice you heavens and those who dwell in them. See, the heavens are now rejoicing because they're free from the satanic realm. It's been thrown down, it's cast out. And so, but then it says, Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you with great wrath because he knows his time is short. Once the devil and his fallen angels hit the earth, you better believe that they're going to be in rage. So let me just keep reading. Now this is where God supernaturally protects this third of the Jews right here. In verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who is that? Israel. So first he attacks Israel. But look at this. The Antichrist releases his military. This is simultaneous. Are y'all following this? It's like the devil and his angels get thrown to the earth. And at the same time, the Antichrist is setting himself up in the temple and the Jews say, we're not going to worship you. There's something where Satan, his fallen angels, the Antichrist, there's this rage that comes up against Israel. But here's what it said. But with two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and a half a time. This is a common phrase in Bible prophecy. Time is one year, times is two years, and half a time. So it's 
three and a half years, away from the presence of the serpent. I wonder here, let's just read this and, and look at this for ourselves. Two wings were given to them. I wonder, I'm sure that that refers to angelic activity, but it makes me wonder if they're not going to be supernaturally carried there. If like literally angels pick some of them up and carry them there. Like supernaturally fast. They couldn't have got there unless the angels picked them up and <laughs> took them there. Because think about it for a moment. They're, think about this. They're running on foot the, from the Antichrist and his army who have vehicles and weapons. How would they escape that unless they had supernatural intervention? I don't know. I'm just asking this for something for you to think about, but I wonder if they're not going to supernaturally be carried there. But it says, look at this, verse 15, the serpent hurled water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so they might cause her to be swept away with the flood. That is his military right there. That water represents his military forces going against them as they're running. So picture the military slaughtering Jews all in Jerusalem and throughout Israel and the rest of them hear of it and they take out running into the wilderness as fast as they can. And the military starts chasing them. That's the waters going after them. But God somehow gives them two wings and they are supernaturally moved beyond the reach of the military to a place. And it says, look at this. This is going to be amazing if God permits us to see this. It says in verse 16, but the earth helped the woman. And the earth itself opened its mouth and drank the river which the dragon had hurled at them. So the military is going to be running after them, driving whatever vehicles and coming after Israel. And the earth itself is going to be like an earthquake shaking and then the ground's going to open up and they're going to fall into the ground. That reminds me of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the Bible. That's happened before. And not only that, it kind of, in a different way, but reminds me of when Israel got on the other side of the Red Sea and then the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh's army, doesn't it? It's similar. So Israel is going to be escaping and the earth itself is going to god's going to cause it to open up and the military is going to fall in it and they're going to escape all right then verse 17 so the dragon was enraged with the woman and look at this he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of god and hold to the testimony of jesus so after, after the, the devil sees that he failed in, in, in a complete annihilation of these Jews, there was a remnant that escaped beyond his reach. And he knows he's not going to be able to kill them because God is supernaturally protecting them. Then in his rage, he begins to turn and wage war against any remaining Christians on the earth to be massacred. All right, and so the Bible speaks of this in a couple places. Let me just read this, and then we'll kind of close out. But Isaiah 26, verses 20 through 27, it says this. Now, this is referring to the nation of Israel. Keep that in mind. 
It says, come my people. I believe that Isaiah was speaking of this time. He saw it all those years before. He was prophetically speaking of this time when Israel will be supernaturally protected by God because there has to be a remnant of Jews alive when Jesus comes. And it says this, come my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place, this is speaking of Jesus, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their wrongdoing, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and no longer cover her slain. On that day, the Lord will punish, look at this, Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah speaks of Leviathan and John speaks of the same time frame and says, there is this beast with seven heads and ten horns. They're seeing the same thing. It's a descriptive term of the Antichrist Babylonian system, which will be the final great enemy against Israel. It says, on that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce, great, and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And then Isaiah 16 two through four again i believe isaiah was prophesying about this time and he says then like fluttering birds or scattered nestlings the daughters of moab will be at the crossing place of the arnon give us advice make a decision cast your shadow like night at high noon hide the outcasts so see there's going to be a place Transjordan that's on the other side in the wilderness and it says God is saying through Isaiah here hide the outcasts those that are fleeing from Israel like refugees are going to be hidden there do not betray the fugitive let the outcast of Moab stay with you be a hiding place from the destroyer for the oppressor has come to an end destruction has ceased oppressors have been removed from the land and look at this at the end of it whenever that time is over it says a throne will be established in faithfulness jesus will come and a judge speaking of jesus will sit on it in trustworthiness in the tent of david moreover he will seek justice and prompt in righteousness like a city of refuge so in the days of israel when god had moses um, he told him through Moses to establish these cities of refuge where you could flee to or if you accidentally killed somebody and it was not murder you could flee to a city of refuge and there you were protected until the high priest died and then you could return back to your family so this place that Israel is going to flee it's outside of the boundaries of the nation of Israel and it's here called Moab because that's now where modern day place like Jordan is. They're going to flee there. And God is saying to them, do not reject these fugitives. They're going to flee to you and you will protect them. And here it is right here. There's a place, Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan that is called right now Petra. It has a very narrow entrance through a twisting canyon. 
It's not accessible to tanks, nor can airplanes attack it directly because the mountains are so precipitous. Buildings are literally cut into those rock systems, uh, the rocks rather. Petra is a formidable fortress and many Bible scholars believe that this is, it's in modern day Jordan right now. You know, if Israel annexes more land, it could be within their boundaries. But based on this scripture, I think it probably won't be within their boundaries. But Petra is a, you ought to look this up, Google that. It is an interesting thing to look at. Inside the rock, inside the mountain itself is cut out rooms. And it's positioned in such a way between mountains and such a narrow way to get to it that it is a, a fortress, like a refuge. And because Bible prophecy buffs believe that this is where Israel is going to flee, many people, many Christians have gone there already right now. There's, there's actually non-perishable foods and waters and things stored there. Because they believe that one day Israel, the remnant, the third, will be supernaturally protected by God to flee there. And that's going to be where they're hidden for a time. In the land of Moab, which today would be in that area, Jordan. Isn't that interesting? So could it be that God prophesying this, that somehow this area was built with that in mind. And the people that built it may have had absolutely no idea, but they cut out of the rock these rooms. And I, I read this in Isaiah 26, 20 through 27, come my people, enter your rooms and close the doors behind you until the indignation runs its course. So it very well could be this place called Petra. But again, I encourage you to Google it and look at pictures. All right, the last thing I would say is this. There's three great promises in these last days before Jesus comes. Right now, we are at the, the, the last of what the Bible calls the church age. It's winding down. And there's three promises we need to be standing on and really praying into. One is, the Bible says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The second one is, Matthew 13, 39, the end of the age is the harvest. And the harvesters are the angels. We need to be contending in prayer for God to pour out his spirit on all flesh and the fullness of the harvest to come in. And then Revelation 19, 7, it says that a bride has made herself ready. So that's the third thing. You're going to see a work of the Holy Spirit helping to purify the bride that will meet him in the air. So there's three things. The great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. The fullness of the end time harvest coming in, which apparently is going to be so challenging that God's got to send his angels to help bring it in because warfare is going to be so severe. And there's going to be a remnant bride that is made ready to meet the Lord in the air. So one of the things I would say plays into revival how can we see fruitfulness? How can we see the outpouring on all flesh and be a part of this end time harvest? And, you know, how can we see this type of fruitfulness in the last days, especially given the severity of spiritual warfare? And 
all the things that are going on that we're even seeing right now, the wars and rumors of wars and racial tensions and natural disasters, all the things that the Bible says are the beginning of sorrows, the birth pangs, which I, I suspect is the popping of some of the seals. But you're seeing them right now raging. How are we going to see revival and a harvest come in? Well, persistent prayer and fasting for sure. But here's something I believe is very important. Honoring the fathers. Did you know the Bible says that those that honor their father and mother, that things will go well for you and you'll have long life. Now let's apply that spiritually. I would submit to you that uh, those that honor the fathers and mothers of the faith, the fathers and mothers of revival, that things will go well for you and you will have longevity and fruitfulness. And Steve Hill was a great inspiration in this area. He really was. In the early days of Brownsville, I have a lot of videos from Brownsville. And especially in those early days, later on he would make references. But in the really early days, Steve would carry this little, uh, I don't even know what you call it, this little, uh, you would open it up anyway, and he had all these cutouts in there that he taped in and it was little stories or little quotes from great past revivals and, and things that have happened and, and while he's preaching you know sometimes he would open that up and he would give references and I remember him really honoring the Welsh revival I remember him talking about and honoring Cambridge I remember him talking about John Wesley who was a great I believe Leonard Ravenhill's hero was John Wesley and he would honor these past revivals and these moves of God and by talking about them and, and teaching some of their teachings and making reference and honoring not only the men and women of God that went before us but honoring the revivals themselves. In a way, he was honoring the fathers and mothers of revival. And listen, Re Brownsville saw longevity and fruitfulness. Things went well and they had longevity. That revival lasted, Steve was there five years. It probably, in my opinion, extended on another three. My brother Kilpatrick and Lyndall were still there. But even the, the last two years when Feltshaw was there, it was still really powerful. My wife and I went, and the Holy Spirit was still moving very powerful. So you're looking at 10 years of a major move of God that people came to from around the world, around 4 million people. So... My point is this, by honoring the fathers and mothers. Now look what the Bible says in Malachi 4, verse 5. He said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great day was Christ's first coming. The terrible day is his last coming. And he will turn, Elijah, speaking about the spirit of Elijah. Now, when you think of Elijah, what would be Elijah's great enemy? the spirit of Jezebel you see the spirit of Elijah versus the spirit of Jezebel the spirit of Elijah I believe is a fiery anointing that's prophetic in its revival it's like a revival fire do you remember John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah and he preached fiery message of repentance and people came what to repent of their sins and get right with God see that's the spirit of Elijah it calls people to repentance. It's a revival fire, okay? So he said this. He said, I'm going to send Elijah. 
And listen to what the work of this anointing is. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. See, where the spirit of Jezebel is at work, there's a dishonor and disrespect of the mothers and fathers. There's a dishonor toward male authority, a disrespect. And Jezebel will drive a wedge between the fathers and children. But when the spirit of Elijah comes, when revival comes, and that revival fire, and that repentance of sin, what happens is, is it heals those areas. It, it turns the hearts of fathers back to children, children to fathers, and it heals the generations. It heals families. Does this make sense? Where Jezebel's at work, the land will be stricken with a curse. But when the spirit of Elijah's at work, the land will be blessed. So turning the hearts of the children back to the fathers brings a blessing on the land. I'm hoping I'm not losing anybody. But that's, I believe that's a key to revival is honoring the fathers and mothers of the faith, specifically past revivals, honoring those that's gone before us. And by doing so, you're turning your heart back to your spiritual mothers and fathers. I believe that there's something about revival in that that brings a blessing on the land, brings healing to the land. That's a part of it. The Bible says we need to humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, seek his face, etc. That's all part of it too. But I do believe that honoring the fathers and mothers does play a significant role in that, especially with longevity and things going well for you and fruitfulness, longevity, fruitfulness. Also, there's something about opening the past revivals up again, opening up the wells of revival. This is a spiritual thing. But how many knows that there's wells of revival that our fathers dug? So digging a well has to do with prayer and fasting. Here they are laboring in prayer and fasting and groaning in deep travail, and they press into God, and they're digging and digging and digging and digging. Finally, they struck water. Revival begins to flow like a mighty river. But look at this scripture, Genesis 26, 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. So it's the son honoring the father by redigging his well. Look at this, that the Philistines had stopped up. The enemy comes in behind them and tries to stop up those wells of revival. But the spiritual children can come and unearth them and get those rivers flowing again and he even called them by the names that his father called them I know for me personally I've gone to some places and really received from God even historically I think about when I visited Cane Ridge and came back and talked about it but God really touched me there you know and there's other places that people have gone and just being there at that well of revival and just praying, you know, that there's something that came into their life, individuals, and when they came back, it was different. There was an anointing. There was a flow, you know. And anyway, hopefully that makes sense. But I do believe that if we honor the fathers and mothers of the faith, honor the fathers and mothers of revival, and talk about these things, the price they paid, what they saw, 
some of the things that they taught and honor them, I believe that it brings a blessing on the land. And it has a role in revival, especially for things to really go well and have longevity. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And, Lord, I just pray you would seal this in our hearts tonight, right now, that this would be established. Help us to learn. Help us to retain this knowledge. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Just let me know when you're done with the recordings. Is everything good back there?